If you think that the Bible is only a collection of merely human writings or human testimony to religious beliefs, then the canon can only be something like a community canon construct. Mm -hmm. But if you believe that there is a God, a personal God who wants us to know him, who has revealed himself in history, yeah. then you're going to ask different kinds of questions. When we're, when we're dealing with people coming from different backgrounds, I think it's very helpful to recognize that I think the canon recognition process is a very organic process. That is why it was very messy. And in fact, that actually gives me more confidence in the canon than the other way around. It's not as if there was a council like 30 years after Christ died and said, we're gonna circle the wagons. Right. We're gonna make sure everything is, is in lockstep. It didn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. By the time you have councils voting, there's already been hundreds of years and they were not, they, they, if you ask them at the time, and you can just see the way the church fathers wrote up about the books, they're not telling you these books are canonical because we say, they're saying these are the ones that have shown themselves to be canonical, that we have good reason to believe sure. are actually divinely commissioned, and we're merely recognizing those books. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, our guest is once again, Dr. John C. Peckham, professor of systematic theology at Andrews University. If you haven't already checked out our last podcast with him, please do so. It's a fantastic discussion on his book, Theodicy of Love. We talk about one of the biggest philosophical issues facing us as Christians, which is how do we understand the problem of evil in the world if we do indeed serve a good and just God? Today, however, we're tackling another difficult topic, which is can we trust the Bible? More specifically, and here comes a new word for many of us, the canonicity of scripture. Or in other words, who wrote the Bible? And can I trust that what is written is true, valid, and authoritative? Who gave it that authority? And why should I trust it? Some parts of our discussion might require you to pause, digest, or re-listen, but we promise it is so worth it. Before we get started, we want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. My co-host today is Michelle Odinma. You can find her at the handle at Michelle Odinma Music. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. We're going to talk about a term today called the canon. And so not a lot of people might be familiar about what the canon is and the canon of the Bible, but mm -hmm. can you describe like what is the canon? And maybe we can start from there. Sure. Yeah, the word canon comes from uh, a number of ancient languages where it comes from a word that meant read, mm. like in the sense of a measuring stick or a ruler. Mm -hmm. So a canon, in, in its basic sense, is a rule or something that you judge things by or a standard. When we're talking about it in the realm of theology, we mean the biblical canon or the canon of scripture. And that there's different definitions of what the canon is, but a general definition is it's those books or those writings that are authoritative theologically uh, for Christianity. Yeah. That's a basic definition, but okay. there's much more to say about that. And I think, you know, people are wanting to know, you know, can they have faith in this book called the Bible, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what are some reasons that, that we can have faith in it? And so, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about how the Bible came about. Did it come about through councils of men? Did people sit down and say, we want this in scripture because mm -hmm. it promotes a certain idea? So how did... How do we get to the canon that we have today? Was it the councils of men or was it something else? Yeah, so so a lot depends on the definitions of canon and what we're looking for. Okay. So the way some people think of the canon is it is an authoritative list of books. Mm -hmm. Or it might be a list of authoritative books. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's a subtle difference, but the question is, where is the authority located, right? And the basic idea is, are the books authoritative because they're put in a list, either decided by men or decided by the three of us sitting at this table, or are they authoritative books in some other way, in virtue of what they are intrinsically? Uh, On my view, the books have authority insofar as God has commissioned them to rule, commissioned them to be the rule. On that view, then it's a list of authoritative books. They're authoritative in their own right. And the list is just an explanation of of which books those are. Mm. So when it comes to the question of how we got the canon, you're going to get different answers from different people depending on what they are looking for. So some people define the canon as a finally settled list that has been voted on by some council. Some council. Mm. This is uh, sometimes called the exclusive or extrinsic view of the canon, sometimes the exclusive view of the canon, that the canon is those books that some group of of churchmen voted on and then said, this is the canon. Mm. If that is the canon you're talking about, then you don't have a list that's officially voted on until about the end of the fourth century. Hmm. But even that is voted on by a local council. Yeah. So it gets very messy if you think of the canon in those terms, and the history is messy anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of the versions of what I call the community canon model, that the books of the canon have authority that are granted to them by a particular community. Right, and I think that's the version you hear a lot in like the History <laughs> Channel, or oh, yes. you hear it a lot in, in secular society. Yes, because they define canon as a list of books voted by a council. So already in the definition, it is those books that a community has deemed authoritative. Yeah. But there's another way of looking at the canon, and that is to view the canon as those books that God has commissioned to function as the rule. Mm. So on my view, and I think you can make a robust theological case for this, the biblical canon is a covenant witness document. Mm-hmm. It is, in other words, a document that witnesses to God's working with humans in history, mm-hmm. which God does consistently by covenant. And what we call the Old Testament, in fact, the word testament just means covenant, and the New Testament just means covenant. Right. What we call Old Testament are those books commissioned by God to witness to God's old covenant revelation and to do so as a rule, authoritative, mm-hmm. not just uh, because they are books but because they are books commissioned by God. Mm -hmm. The New Testament is the witness to Christ that Christ himself commissions. So if that's what the books are, then the question is which books are actually so commissioned by God to function as the rule prescribed by the ruler. And if you're looking for that kind of a canon, you're asking a different kind of question. Mm-hmm. You're still going to have a, a lot to say about the his, what I call the history of canon recognition. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the history determines the canon. Okay. I believe that Canonical books, if they're truly canonical in the sense that they're commissioned by God, they would be canonical, meaning they have ruling authority, whether or not you or I accept them as such. Gotcha. Analogous to the way that Jesus is the Messiah and is the Lord, whether or not I recognize him as such. My recognition of him makes a difference because Christ can only uh, actually function as my Lord and Savior if I accept him. Mm -hmm. And it's true with the canon as well. The canon only can function as authoritative if one accepts it as authoritative, but it's not the recognition that makes it authoritative. Mm -hmm. So in all the books that you read, history books, you have to ask, are they using a kind of a community canon definition? And then they're really asking about the recognition of the books. When did we have a finally settled list? If you're you're asking which books come from God, you're going to ask different questions about how do I identify which writings God really wanted me to have? Sure. So are you saying then um, with the latter model that you described, if it's intrinsically uh, canon or commissioned, is there a underlying theme that goes through all of these books 
that we would say have intrinsic commissioning from God? Yeah, so there's three traits. Some people call them criteria of canonicity, but it's better to think of them as traits. They're, they're things that these books would have and would manifest. And the main one is just divinely commissioned authorship. For the Old Testament, that means that it's written by, or at least supervised by, a prophet, and particularly a covenantal prophet, by which I mean a prophet who is witnessing to God's covenant revelation uh, in history. In the New Testament, it has to be apostolic, meaning that it's written by a first-generation Christ-commissioned apostle, okay. which is minimally a witness to the resurrected Christ, mm -hmm. or a close associate of one of those apostles. In other words, it is the apostolic testimony, the testimony of those first-generation eyewitnesses that Christ himself commissioned as his witnesses. And it's not a coincidence that in the New Testament you have this language. It's usually translated as martyr, mm -hmm. but it just means to witness. Okay. And you have this testimony language. And Christ himself says, I came to testify to the truth. Mm -hmm. And he commissions his apostles to testify right. to the truth, which initially is what Christ said and did. And so that community is witnessing. They're not giving the books authority, but they can test, right? While they're still alive, while these books are still written, that first generation of apostles who actually lived with Christ, traveled with him for three and a half years, they can test anything that's written as testimony about Christ, whether it's accurate. And uh, eventually, the way the church comes to recognize which books in the New Testament are actually apostolic is that question. Do they go back to that first-generation apostolic witness? If they do, they are accepted as functionally canonical, whether or not they use that term, mm -hmm. because they have ruling authority because they come from the ruler himself. That's the simplest way to think of it. So it sounds to me like if you wanted to have this conversation with somebody who's kind of an atheist, secularist, mm -hmm. that you're probably not starting on the same foundation. Right. Because to understand like intrinsic authority would have to be that you first have a recognition of who, that there is a God right. and that, mm -hmm. that he exists mm -hmm. and he's real and he has authority versus if you're a secular that you'd be, you can only see it from the community extrinsic canonization standpoint. Is that correct? That's mm -hmm. correct, yes. If you think that the Bible is only a collection of merely human writings or human testimony to religious beliefs, then the canon can only be something like a community canon construct. Mm -hmm. But if you believe that there is a God, a personal God who wants us to know him, who has revealed himself in history, not just an esoteric, transcendent, mystical uh, kinds of visions and dreams, but actually in history, uh, much of which actually is documented history, yeah. then you're going to ask different kinds of questions. It, which writings actually come from him and why. And I think um, when, we're, when we're dealing with people coming from different backgrounds, I think it's very helpful to recognize that I think the canon recognition process is a very organic process. That is why it was very messy. And in fact, that actually gives me more confidence in the canon than the other way around. It's not as if there was a council like 30 years after Christ died and said, we're going to circle the wagons. Right. We're going to make sure everything is, is in lockstep. It didn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. By the time you have councils voting, there's already been hundreds of years. And they were not... They, they, if you ask them at the time, and you can just see the way the church fathers wrote up about the books, they're not telling you these books are canonical because we say. They're saying these are the ones that have shown themselves to be canonical, that we have good reason to believe sure. are actually divinely commissioned, and we're merely recognizing those books. The simplest way for somebody who's willing to actually entertain the possibility of a living God mm -hmm. manifest supremely in Jesus to think about the canon is the canon are those books that are ratified by Christ, which is the Old Testament, which is pointing mm -hmm. towards him, mm -hmm. and those writings that are commissioned by Christ as a witness to the greatest event of history, which is the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So I argue that the canon is Christocentric, not just in the sense that all of it testifies to Christ, mm -hmm. but in the sense that the very recognition of it 
is tied to who Christ is. And the way Christ deals with what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible gives strong evidence that uh, he believed those books have ruling authority coming from God, and he knew which books those were, and his audience knew which books those were. And then the New Testament, if we're recognizing correctly, are just those writings that record the apostolic testimony that Christ commissioned them to give to the ends of the earth. Of course, it was given orally at first and in writing, but for those of us many generations removed, it has to be passed down to us by writing. And very early this would be the case because they're going all over the globe, right? right. You have to write down testimony because you can't be everywhere at once, and you're just originally a small collection of appointed apostles. So what if... Uh so you have books like the Apocrypha, right? Um, I remember I was uh, canvassing some years back, and I knocked on a guy's door, and I'm uh, showing him some Christian literature, and then we start this conversation about the Bible, and he's like, actually, I've just gotten really into the Apocrypha. I'm not sure why it's not part of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the regular scripture. I've never read it before. What do you say to someone who poses that question? Um, how do you answer that? Yeah, so the Apocrypha are, is a collection of books uh, that is written... Uh, after the close of what Protestants consider the Old Testament, during what is sometimes called the intertestamental period, so sometime after the mid to late uh, 5th century BC. 1st and 2nd Maccabees would be one of them. 1st and 2nd Maccabees, right, Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon, and many others. Um, And uh, these Old Testament Apocrypha books are not considered to be canonical by Protestants for a number of reasons. Uh, The first one is just that divinely commissioned authorship. Uh, Protestants do not believe that those books actually have prophetic authority of the kind of the Old Testament. And there's quite a bit of evidence for this. That doesn't mean the books aren't good for reading. They're very helpful historically. Anybody who studies the New Testament especially needs to read what's called Second Temple temple Literature, Mm. which includes the Old Testament Apocrypha, but it also includes a lot of other writings like some of the writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have a lot of what's called Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And many of the books that people might be even more familiar with or have heard of, like uh, the Book of Enoch, for instance, is not actually in the Old Testament Apocrypha. It's one of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, uh, not that it's a pseudo-writing per se, but it's written by someone other than the title title of the Mm -hmm. book because it was written way later uh, than those people were living. So one of the reasons that we don't, that Protestants generally don't accept the Old Testament Apocrypha to be canonical, which is not to say it's not good for reading, is that there, uh, there's believed to have been a cessation of prophecy in the intertestamental period. Mm. So you have Josephus who's writing uh, just a few decades after the death of res- resurrection of Christ, and he tells us that uh, in, in a book he wrote called Against Appion, he says, Our history has been written very particularly over the ages. He's talking about the Old Testament, and we have these justly accredited books, and he tells us uh, there's three sections of them. He gives a particular number that seems to match with what we call, what might call the Protestant Old Testament, the 39 books that we have. And he says, but it has not been written in the like time in the like way since Artaxerxes, which is that mm-hmm. mid-5th century date. Yeah. He's not the only one, even in 1 Maccabees 9.27, which is one of the Old Testament Apocrypha books, it talks about uh, how prophecy had ceased among them. Mm-hmm. And you have a whole dissertation that was recently written and published about the cessation of prophecy during this time period. And that's one of the main reasons why, even though some later Christians adopted the Apocrypha, uh, Judaism, the Hebrew Bible, is actually the same Old Testament that we count as 39 books they count as 24 books, but it's the same writings. We'll talk more about that later, I think, mm-hmm. coming up. But you have this, this witness of the Hebrew community, which doesn't make it so, but counts as evidence, just like courtroom testimony doesn't make someone guilty or innocent, sure. but it counts as evidence, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, you have the first, first century witness of Josephus and Philo, who's a contemporary of Jesus writing in Alexandria. He quotes what 
the Old Testament scriptures, what we number as 39 books, copiously, never quotes the Old Testament Apocrypha as authoritative. Mm. And then Jesus and the apostles uh, seem to know of a collection that is actually uh, has the same limits of what we see in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And they quote from that Old Testament very copiously. I think something like 31 of the 39 books are quoted, mm -hmm. most of them quoted as scripture. And you don't have any obvious quotations. You might have allusions, references. You don't have any obvious quotations from the Old Testament Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. And even when there are such allusions, they're not referred to as authoritative scripture. Yeah. So when you say that, that, um, that Jesus ratified yes. the Old Testament, um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is the way Jesus actually relates to the Old Testament books gives us confidence that those are the books that he believed came from God. Okay. And if Jesus is who he said he was and he resurrected from the dead, we have good reason to trust his testimony, right? That's the best testimony that you can get. Yeah. Uh, the reason why we think that is, well, let, let me show a couple like obvious things that you can see once you, once you see them. Yeah. So in Luke 11, I think it's verse 51, Jesus is talking to some of his interlocutors. And as you know, many of the Jewish leaders are sometimes uh, trying to trap him with, with tricky questions yeah, and, sure. and oppose his ministry. And he, he responds in Luke 11, 51, and he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, sure. who was killed between mm -hmm. the altar and the sanctuary, mm -hmm. right? Which probably doesn't mean very much to the listeners immediately, except if you start asking, who is Abel? Right. Abel is the first one to die for his faith, mm. right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. And who is Zechariah? There's many Zechariahs in the Bible, yeah. but based on the way he's described as dying, it is clearly a Zechariah that appears at the end of the book that we call Second Chronicles. Mm. And he's actually the last one to die for his faith, to be martyred in the book of Second Chronicles. Mm -hmm. Now, this is very significant because in the Protestant Bible, the books are ordered differently than they are in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Same collection, but different order. We order the books from Genesis to Malachi, right? So you would yeah, think okay. the last book is Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, the last book is the book of Chronicles. Mm -hmm. First and Second Chronicles, they just call Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And so he refers, when he says that, from Abel right. yeah. to the last martyr in Chronicles, you've always been persecuting the prophets I sent you. Interesting. Which suggests that he knows this same kind of grouping that is later very clearly the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Chronicles. Mm -hmm. That collection in the Hebrew Bible is three sections. Mm -hmm. The law, the Torah, the five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. The prophets, which is a collection of books that are named prophets, the, the so-called major prophets, minor prophets. And then you have a book called, a section called, I should say, called the writings. Mm -hmm. Now, this is very significant because in another place, uh, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus meets, if people are familiar with the story, he meets a couple of his followers mm. after Christ had been crucified, right. but he had not yet manifested himself to the community. Right. So they are kind of distraught that Jesus has died mm -hmm. uh, and they don't recognize him. He kind of veils uh, who he mm -hmm. is, so they don't recognize him. And on the way to Emmaus, he tells them all the things written about himself mm -hmm. in the law and the prophets. And in Luke 24, 44, he says, all the things that must be filled in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Mm. Now that's very interesting because the Law and Prophets seems to correspond to those first two sections. Right. And the Psalms is the first book in the writing section in the Hebrew Bible mm. and by far the longest. Right. And it, there's, it's probable that when Jesus says the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, he's referring to those same, same, three, same three sections. Gotcha. Maybe they weren't called the writings yet, but he refers to the first part of it. And this is a this is a usual Hebrew custom. Yeah. Uh, if you learn Hebrew, one of the things you'll learn is that the book of, what we call the book of Genesis, mm -hmm. in Hebrew, the name is 
Bereaved or Bereaved, Bereaved, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. is one word translated in English in the beginning. It's just it's just the first word in the book. Same thing with Exodus, what we call Exodus. It's just named after the first word. Mm -hmm. So it seems likely to me, and there's a number of other circumstantial evidences, that Jesus is just referring to those same three collections. And he's referring to from the beginning Genesis to the end of Chronicles. And it suggests that they have the same Old Testament that we recognize the what we call 39 books today. Mm -hmm. You have not only those kinds of references, but just all throughout the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles are referring to the scriptures. These things must happen so that the scriptures are fulfilled. Now that makes very little sense if the people he's speaking to don't know which books are the scriptures, right? Right. If I'm teaching a class and I tell my students, it's in the syllabus, but I've given them five different syllabi, they're going to ask me which one, one, right? right? But you don't have those kinds of questions because the community at the time knew which books are being referred to. And the evidence in the New Testament itself strongly points toward the same collection of Old Testament books that we recognize as canonical today. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, we have this great evidence that Jesus uh, acknowledged which books were in the Old Testament, and you gave a lot of great examples. How do we know which, what, what is canon for the New Testament? Like, who is there collecting and saying, this is inspired, but this, but the Gospel of Thomas is not? Or, right, yeah. right. I should probably just mention, before yeah. we move away from the Apocrypha, that there are other reasons. You have that cessation of prophecy. You have the first, first uh, generation witness that doesn't accept it. You have the way Jesus and the apostles use the Old Testament, but don't appear to use the Apocrypha mm-hmm. as authoritative. And then you have also the fact that there appear to be some inconsistencies. Uh, And that's the second criteria of canonicity is consistency with past revelation. If a book really comes from God, then it's not going to contradict earlier writings Mm -hmm. that we know came from God that were attested as prophetic books. And there appear to be some teachings and at least some of the apocryphal books that do not meet that standard. And then finally, many of the early church fathers also rejected the Old Testament apocrypha like Jerome and Athanasius. And Jerome was an excellent biblical scholar Mm -hmm. and did not think that they were of the like authority as the other books. But now you're talking about other books and the New Testament. When it comes to the New Testament, we're also looking for evidence of divine, divinely commissioned authorship, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they also need to be consistent with past revelation. But divinely commissioned authorship, meaning is it a book that actually comes from the apostles or a close associate of apostles? So it has mm-hmm. apostolic testimony and it has apostolic oversight. Now, there's different views about the authorship of the books, but if we use both the internal testimony in the New Testament books themselves, and we rely on the testimony of the early church writings, the early church fathers, there is strong evidence that the very 27 New Testament books that we have are written by apostles and close associates of the apostles. Most of the books, according to to church tradition, uh, very early testimony are written by those that we know as apostles themselves. You have a couple of books, like the so-called Book of Mark, uh, the Book of Jude, for instance, the Book of James, where it's not one of the original 12, at least, that wrote it. Uh, You also have the Pauline writings, but he is an apostle Mm -hmm. from being met by the risen Christ, and so he's an apostle in his own right. You have other books that aren't written by, by any of the 12, but those we have evidence in the early church to suggest those are actually written by close associates of apostles. Mm. So the book of, 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 of James and Jude, uh, these books are believed to have been written by the brothers of Jesus, 
And so they would be very close associates uh, to Jesus and the early apostolic community. In fact, James in the book of Acts is identified as one of the earliest leaders of the church at the Jerusalem council in the middle of the book of Acts. He seems to be the one that is actually uh, leading in that place. Mm -hmm. And so, by the way, that itself is one of the things that historians point to about testimony of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, If any of us claim to be the Messiah, yeah. The, our siblings would be the last one, if you have any siblings, would sure. be the last ones to, <laughs> to believe, believe that claim, right? right? Yeah. The, very like, fact that, the very fact that James, and initially we're told in the gospel they didn't believe, mm-hmm. but yeah. later they're converted mm-hmm. by something, right. almost surely the resurrection. Wow. Then you have the book of Mark. Mark, according to Papias, who's writing around AD 115, he tells us that the gospel of Mark is writing Peter's account mm. of the things that happened to, okay. to, to Jesus and Peter. And it rings true, uh, a, a very well-known New Testament uh, scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham wrote a book, I think it's called The Gospel as Eyewitness, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he argues that there is an inclusio or there is a particular literary device that begins and ends that signals that this is Peter's account. Mm -hmm. And if you read Mark, you'll see all these kinds of things about Peter that suggest uh, that what Papias says is true based on internal testimony, and then it's just also the witness of the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. So you have apostles, books written by apostles that we know were among the 12, um, and then you have these books that are written, at least the best evidence that we have suggests they were written by close associates of those first generation apostles mm-hmm. who are the ones commissioned by Christ to, to give this apostolic test, testimony. Mm-hmm. And this is just what 2 Peter 3, 2 says. Uh, 2 Peter 3 says, remember what has been delivered to you by right. the prophets, the, old, the prophets of old. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if it says the, the teaching or the command or both of your Lord and Savior through the apostles. Right. And so the apostles, insofar as they're really commissioned by Christ, they have ruling authority because they're testifying about the ruler. So very early in canon recognition, any writing that was believed to actually be a writing of what Jesus actually did and said it's functionally canonical immediately, right? Right. And so the Gospels are very, very early recognized and solidified. Those are the books written by the apostles about Jesus. They have ruling authority, that is canonical authority, because they come from the ruler. Then the question for the other books is, are they apostolic? Mm. So the Pauline writings, there's very early recognition of this collection of Pauline writings, even in 2 Peter 3, uh, I think it's 15 and 16, uh, Peter says that refers to all the rest of Paul's letters, and it says, in them some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures, which shows you already by the time 2 Peter is written, there's a collection of Pauline writings that are already recognized in the Christian community as scriptures. Then you have the other writings, and the question is, are they apostolic or are they not? And because the church is dispersed so wide, and because there's no central governing authority, there's nothing like the Roman Catholic Church with authority until the 4th, 5th century or even later. Yeah. There's no central clearinghouse saying these are the books and these are not the books. You're going to have a messy process of recognition about which one of these really come from the apostles. But if they had confidence it came from the apostles, they accepted it as canonical because it came from the ruler Jesus himself. Wow. So I, I don't mean to jump us back, but I had a question uh, from the Old Testament. Um, so it sounded it sounded to me like uh, the the Torah or the Hebrew uh, the Hebrew Bible was the the base. So for example, say they had another there was another book in question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They would then use the books that were already confirmed to test and see if that one was legitimate. Yes, is that how it works? Yes. Okay. 
Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. So this relates to that, that second trait, consistency with past revelation. So Isaiah 8.20 is one text where it says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. Mm-hmm. And very, very early, if you read just in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, you see that Moses himself is attested miraculously to the Israel community as having uh, a very strong authority, a particular kind of ruling authority. Right. And he is instructed to write down the the witness to the covenant. And that covenant is to be passed down and have ruling authority. Mm -hmm. And any prophet that comes after Moses is to be tested by that revelation given to Moses. And then any of those prophets that pass the test are tested by other prophets until you get to the point where the time of the prophets ceased until Jesus comes, who is the fulfillment of this. And then he both ratifies those prophets and commissions the New Testament. But it's a very organic process where God is leading the community of Israel step by step. And he's showing them these are the true prophets. It's interesting that earlier in the history of what we call the Old Testament, you have uh, seemingly more miraculous kinds of evidences of who who God's prophet is. Yeah. And later, it seems that God is withdrawing as the people are pushing him away as the sure. cycle of rebellion continues. Gotcha. So later you have prophets like Jeremiah, who mm-hmm. they should have known was a true prophet because he is testifying sure. in a way that is consistent with the prophetic witness. But against him, you have hundreds of false prophets. Right. Yeah. And they're following the false prophets at that time mm. because they rebelled against God. But they should have known that Jeremiah was the true prophet because he agrees with the past revelation. Mm. And this is another reason why it is dangerous to, to try to decide the canon yeah. Based on what a community accepts. Mm. Because the community did not his own community at the time did not accept Jeremiah. Sure. Wow. Later communities accepted him. But communities tend to reject radically prophetic witnesses. Yeah. Wow. Because prophets tend to tell you uncomfortable truths, right? right. Yeah. In the Old Testament, right? You need to take care of the poor and the oppressed. Yeah. People don't want to hear that, right? You need to do this. You need to do that. This is coming from God. So it's very easy to reject a prophetic voice, and communities do this consistently throughout the Bible, mm-hmm. all through the Old Testament, then in the New Testament with John the Baptist, and Jesus himself is rejected by right. the leadership, at least, of his community at the time, those who were supposed to be in authority. Yeah, if right. anybody had the right to say that's a prophet who's not, theoretically, it's the very ones who reject Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so that cannot be a test of what actually comes from God. It has to be something that God himself attests to, which he does supremely in Jesus of Nazareth, who rose from the dead. Sure. So, uh, so um, I've heard whispers about the book of Esther and the, uh, the reality that it doesn't necessarily mention Christ or anything about the Messiah in the book and how that could possibly be a reason why it shouldn't be in there or part of the canon. Um, How would we respond to that? Is a book specifically mentioning the Messiah criteria for it to be part of the Old Testament canon. Yeah, so the book of Esther is coming from a later time in biblical history, and it's one of those que- one of those books that questions have been raised about. Um, so a couple of things that we could say there. The book of Esther doesn't tell us who wrote it. According to at least some Jewish traditions, it was written by Mordecai. And in the Jewish tradition, Mordecai is also believed to be a prophet. Mm-hmm. So it was written by Mordecai, who's witnessing this, and he truly is a prophet that's witnessing to these events. Then that would, and there's clearly nothing inconsistent in the book. Right, uh, as right. you mentioned, it doesn't make any theological arguments. It's really historical reporting of this way that the Jews were saved through Esther's intervention uh, from persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would meet the criteria if that Jewish tradition is correct. Uh, so there's not evidence counting against it, but it's one that we know less about, so to speak. Um, so in large part, we rely. I rely on the testimony of those who are closer to the events. Uh, sure. Not that their testimony makes it so. It's not that the Esther is authoritative because the community said it was. Right. But the community is in a position to make the judgment much closer to the material than I am. With other books, I have 
more clear evidences of that book. But I sometimes wonder, and this is speculation, so just, mm-hmm. <laughs> just bear sure. with me, mm-hmm. um, but a couple of the books that, that seem to have been raised in the first century AD. Now, by that time, there's probably already a, a settled, something like a settled Old Testament canon, at least functionally already operative based on the the witness that we saw from Jesus and the apostles, Josephus and others. Uh, Josephus refers to that same three-part collection. And there's many other uh, evidences that the Old Testament is known already, at least by the time of Jesus, which is very important, because if we have the Old Testament Jesus had, then we have the right Old Testament, right? But there is something that was called the the Council of Yavna, sometimes translated the Council of Jamnia. Hmm. And there was a a hypothesis put forward by a scholar by the name of Heinrich Gretz that this was where the the Old Testament canon was closed by this collection of rabbis. Hmm. Uh, And then that kind of got parroted in secondary literature as the Hmm. hypothesis of of when the canon was closed. But later on, other scholars came and said there wasn't actually any council here. It was just a couple of rabbis discussing something. And they weren't actually settling the limits of the canon. They were actually talking about how holy the books were. Mm-hmm. And they talked about particularly the book of Esther and the book of Song of Solomon, sometimes mm-hmm. called Song of Songs. And, they, and the question they asked was, do these defile the hands? By which they mean, are they sacred? Are they holy? Mm-hmm. But there's something that those two books have in common. You have the Song of Solomon that is obviously involved with a number of things about sexuality and about this, this, this woman and, and Solomon. And then you have Esther, who the main protagonist uh, is, also, is also a woman, doesn't mention God. And so you have a number of things that might, questions that might be raised depending on the way one is coming to look at these books. Sure. And I don't know if that played any role mm. in what they're thinking about, about these books, that the main character is Esther, etc., Mm. But uh, we, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about the authorship of Esther, but I think the historical testimony points strongly in the direction of canonicity. Mm. And so during the time, uh, you know, of maybe it's the 5th century BC, like who was the one to say prophecy has ceased and there are no more books after Micah or yeah. there's no more prophets after Micah? Like who was the one yeah. to make those types of decisions? So, so just like early in covenantal revelation, this is not happening uh, as a all at once, like by a decree it's much more or- organic process. Mm. And so the ones who are saying prophecy had ceased are saying this around the time of the second century BC and beyond. Mm. So they're not saying in the fifth century, there's no more prophecy. They're saying, looking back on our history, that's when the prophets stopped appearing. Mm. And we see this even in, in Old Testament history before that. If you read about Samuel, before God raised up Samuel, there'd been a, a drought of mm. prophets. Many people read the Bible and they think that these things are happening very quickly. There's miracle, and there's miracle, but often there's hundreds of years passing between events, yeah. particularly between events of, of God intervening. Mm. And so there seems to be something like that in what we call the intertestamental period. Mm. So you have these uh, Jewish community looking back and saying these prophets haven't been arising, they haven't been yeah. attested with covenantal authority, what Josephus called accredited authority. And so looking back, they say we haven't had these prophets in a long time. Um, when it comes to the collection of books, uh, the one of the strongest traditions is that there was a collection of books established by Ezra and Nehemiah, one or both of them, uh, Ezra himself being a prophet. Uh, the book of Maccabees, I think Second Maccabees 2, uh, says that there was a the memoirs of Nehemiah, mm-hmm. which many scholars think was a collection of books that might have been established, maybe the same Old Testament collection that we recognize today. And then it says in the next verse that Judas, Judas Maccabeus, mm-hmm. uh, also formed a collection or got the collection of books, uh, which would have been about, about 160 BC. Mm-hmm. So you have these collections of what was already deemed authoritative books that seem to have been in place maybe as early as the 5th century BC, Certainly by the time of Judas Maccabeus, you have this. But it's not by fiat saying, oh, there can't be any more prophets. It's more of looking back 
God isn't hasn't been working that way in our community. And of course, they're the ones who are in the best position to determine to that. kind of recognize right. this yeah. based on the material on the ground. But we don't have to rely just on their testimony. You have a lot of testimony from the Hebrew community. But then when it comes to Jesus and the apostles, the way they relate to the Old Testament writings that we have, at least the ones they reference, which is most of them, mm-hmm. and the way Jesus refers to this collection, is strong evidence pointing in one direction. You can never have absolute certainty. Um, and even if there was like a verse in the Bible that said, these are the books in the canon, you know what the next question would be? Well, where did, where did that verse come from? Right, right, why, right. why is that like, verse authoritative exactly. to give the list? That's so you're always going to have this same kind of epistemological problem, this problem of why do you believe it? Right. And if your standard is absolute certainty, you won't actually end up believing anything, right? Yeah. If I, I could mm. not believe that I'm talking to you right now, maybe it's all a dream. And there'd be <laughs> no way for me to prove that with absolute certainty because anything I would appeal to could also be in the dream, right? right. Now, reasonably, we're not going to go down that road. And that's <laughs> we don't live that way either, right? right? We actually live based on what is most plausible given all the evidence we have, which is sometimes called an abductive argument. The sure. best explanation for all the evidence we have. Right. So I would say you're not going to deduce and say these are the books, the only books that could possibly be. No, it's theoretically possible that we have not recognized them correctly, but the weight of the evidence, the the best explanation is that these are the books, these are the ones that meet the criteria. All the other books we have extant that are ancient writings, Mm -hmm. they have some flaw or some other reason why they don't seem to meet these traits of canonicity uh, that that are not arbitrary traits. These very traits are actually come from the covenantal witness itself. Mm-hmm. The prophets and apostles I mentioned before in 2 Peter 3, consistency from Isaiah 8.20. So it's not that we're imposing them outside. Canonical books have to look like this. Sure. No, it's canonical books have to come from God. And if they come from God, that's divinely commissioned authorship, they will be consistent with themselves. Mm-hmm. And the third criterion that some people sometimes point to is they will somehow testify of themselves that they're not just like any books. Mm-hmm. That's the self-authentication. Yeah. That's the most subjective criterion. And it would not be something I would use for someone else to say these books are because they, they witness to me. But those that have read the scripture w- in, with the eyes of faith, mm-hmm. praying for the Holy Spirit to speak through the scriptures, I think many people can testify that these writings are not just like any other writings. Sure. So the Protestant Bible has 66 books, but there are, um, like I know the Roman Catholic Bible has um, additions to it, or they, they have other books included in their canon. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the difference between deciding that canon versus the Protestant canon that we use? Yeah, so it's a long and messy history. So very early from the time that these things are being discussed overtly in a way that we can track, we only have little bits and pieces from the history, but at least from the fourth century onward, you have some church fathers on one side, like Jerome I mentioned, who was the early translator of the Bible into Latin. He was a very proficient biblical scholar. And you have others like Athanasius who are saying, no, those books that we call the Old Testament Apocrypha, they're not of like authority. And so they would still keep the books because they had them ancient writings. They would keep them, but as a separate collection, like Mm -hmm. other books, right? right? And they'd get passed down kind of together, but not with the same authority. Mm-hmm. Then you have other church fathers like, like Augustine who actually adopted the Old Testament Apocrypha. And some people suggest, because Augustine and others were more influential theologians, sure. uh, that ended up carrying the day. But it's very fluid. You have disagreements in the church tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can find people on, on both sides. And it's not sure. kind of being settled by councils uh, until you get to the Council of Trent. 
There are some councils earlier that, it, that accepted the Old Testament Apocrypha, but they're all local ones, mm-hmm. and there's not uniform agreement. Mm-hmm. And it's not till the Council of Trent, which is the Council of the Counter-Reformation, mm-hmm. after the Protestant Reformation had begun and the Protestants had questioned those books of the Apocrypha that had come to be in use in the tradition, that the Council of Trent officially votes and says these are the books of the Old Testament Apocrypha, mm-hmm. are canonical books. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes people hear about this and they think, oh, how... If there's different canons, how can we know which one is right? Yeah. First, I want to make it clear to people that actually there's a lot more agreement than there is disagreement. Mm. So you have something called the common canonical core. Yeah. And virtually all Christians, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they accept this common canonical core, which is those same 66 books that you mentioned. Mm. Almost no one accepts the Old Testament pseudepigrapha as canonical, like the Book of Enoch and others, or so-called New Testament apocrypha, New Testament pseudepigrapha. We might mention some of those a little bit later. Uh, almost no one accepts those and thinks they're they're canonical, uh, with the exception of maybe like some neo-Gnostic movements that we can talk <laughs> about later. Uh, but generally, Christians are are saying it's these books, these 66 books, and maybe these Old Testament Apocrypha, mm. which the Roman Catholic Church counts as seven books. It's more than that because they have some chapters added on to the book of Daniel that have mm. their own name as chapters. Uh, so it can be counted. It's, it's actually almost like twice that many if you count kind of the additions, different prayers, et cetera, that are in different books that based on textual criticisms don't go, don't seem to go back to the beginning mm. uh, of those books. Uh, but it's really just a small set of books that is disputed among most Christians, and it's those Old Testament Apocrypha books. Mm. And again, I just think they don't give evidence of actually coming from covenantal prophets Mm -hmm. and being consistent. But that doesn't mean they're not good for reading. It can be helpful for reading. It's just I wouldn't give them a kind of authority that I'm going to trust them as inspired testimony the way that I would trust the books of the Old Testament and certainly the books of the New Testament. You mentioned the Council of Trent. That's when kind of we have the, the Protestant Bible form that we have today. Or when did that, like the one that we currently have, when did that, that transition from what, you know, collecting all the writings together to just having these 66 books. So the Council of Trent is a Roman Catholic council that's responding to the Reformation. So the Reformation has come and it's part of the counter-Reformation where they're having a council to try to respond to, from their perspective, all the trouble that the the Protestant Reformation is causing. When it comes to the so-called Protestant Bible, that itself is also a somewhat organic process. You have many of the early reformers like Luther and other, the magisterial reformers, Mm -hmm. so to speak, that are questioning the Old Testament Apocrypha, Mm -hmm. uh, but they also wonder about some other books as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, like a, James. Yeah, like <laughs> James. Yes, yes, like James. Uh, Luther said in one of his table talks, he said uh, he'd like to throw little Jimmy into the straw. <laughs> into the fire, I'm sorry. He called James a book of straw, and he said he'd like to throw little Jimmy into the fire. Uh, he he, he might have been a little inebriated when he said that, but it was written down by somebody else that he said that. Um, but I think we have good reason to believe that James... Is, is apostolic. Uh, mm-hmm. In any case, uh, you have this kind of organic process. By the time of the Council of Trent, you have around that time, um, or a, le- a little bit later, you have many con- Protestant confessions that explicitly state uh, which which ones of the books are accepted as canonical as the Protestants. So a good juxtaposition with the Council of Trent would be the 39 Articles of the Church of England. In the 39 Articles of the Church of England, you have the same canon recognized as the 66 books. Um, but it's, again, also an, an organic process mm. of recognition. But by that time, it's not a matter of generally, other than some questions raised by Protestant reformers here and there, it's not a question of which of, which of the 66 books you'll accept. It's whether it's those books and other books. Mm. Luther struggled with the book of James not, not so much because of any reason that I think is valid more to do with the theology of James. Mm. And Luther was so... He had come out of 
a particular religiosity mm-hmm. that at least as he perceived it was a very works-based righteousness. Sure. That God's righteousness to him meant a righteous God who wants to condemn me. Mm. And that's why grace was so important to him. And when, yeah. when he read the book of James, I think wrongly sure. as not attesting to that grace in the way that he would have liked. Mm. Although I think the book of James is very consistent with the Pauline message yeah. if you read it canonically in virtue of the New Testament. But mm. he didn't like the book of James very much more for a theological reason. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't want to accept or reject books based on my theological judgments because then who's actually ruling? Yeah. Well, I am or you are. And I'm not saying Luther meant that. I have great respect for Luther. Uh, But I think the the reason why he had difficulty with James was more related to his own personal biography Mm, as much as anything else. Interesting. Before we end our discussion today, I want to encourage you to stay tuned for part two of our talk where we delve into the New Testament and the Gnostic Gospels and why they weren't accepted as canon, as well as how do we apply this information to everyday life. Recommended reading for this week include his book, Canonical Theology, The Biblical Canon, Sola Scriptura, and Theological Method. Once again, we want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Peckham. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. Some of you have been giving us suggestions on future episodes. Just want to say, keep them coming. I enjoy the suggestions. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.